Welcome to Hummingbird, conversations about creativity, arts, literature, and life with Catherine Graham and Jessica Outram. Hi, I'm Jessica, and I'm coming to you today from Coburg, Ontario. We respectfully acknowledge that the land on which we gather and learn daily is the treaty and traditional territory of the Michisaugig Anishinaabeg. We are grateful for our relationship with the First Nations of this territory, for their care for and teachings about the land, the water, and all our relations. As people of the Williams Treaty, we continue our journey to strengthen our understanding of our treaty relationship and of how to move forward together in a good way. Last time we said, it's always good to end with a poem. And then somehow I think we got to, it's always good to begin with a poem. We are. And the poem is the same one it was during the last episode. What birds they were. They arrive, a cloud with wings and a brain. They soar and hover, land on the celery trees. They cloak the leaves, black fruit, seed eyes. They become what they are human watchers, staring at the frozen girl strewn on the lawn. They drop her temperature. She feels snow, her blue lungs. Her mind floats, pastel clouds, a glint of buckle. High and dry in the bird-free air, she coils lightning into the double helix of herself. I always need a big pause after your poems because I want them to sink in. And then I find that when I get to the end of a poem, my natural instinct is is to kind of have it on a loop, you know, like when we were teenagers and listened to our favorite songs over and over and over again. Yeah. I do that a lot with poetry where I listen to it and then I loop back to it. I love how this week as a something new, we're trying a loop back to kind of begin where we ended the time before. There's kind of a neat continuity to that. I'm very curious about a few things in this poem. I'm very intrigued by celery trees. I love, I love that. I want to know more and I want to know if, if, you know, when I think of celery trees, I literally think of what celery looks like and that leafy part on the top of the celery. And then what would that look like if they were growing full size, like the, the size of a birch, the seed, the black fruit, the seed eyes, there's a life being given to things that I wouldn't normally give a life to. There's an eeriness to that quality that comes through for me because they're, they're human watching. So who is watching the humans and why are they watching the, the humans? What's mm -hmm. happening here? There's an otherworldness that's happening throughout this whole poem that, that transports me to somewhere else. And then of course, there's all the color throughout, the snow, blue lungs, the pastel clouds, even the, the, the lightning and the double helix. For me, I see that in color when I'm listening to the poem and reading the poem. And so I'm really curious if you could tell us a little bit more about this poem and the birds, what, what the birds they were. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks for pointing out those parts of the poem. Interesting too that you see color in that last image because I do as well too. I see the actual motion of the lightning and the color and 
yellow and gold. You know, poems kind of arrive, talking about birds arriving, but poems kind of arrive in strange ways. And sometimes they are a composite of various strands from lives and former lives in that way that childhood is from such a long time ago. And I may have mentioned this in the last episode, but I remember as a little girl coming home and we had this sort of long, grassy sort of entryway to the house and it backed onto the Niagara Scarpman. And this was the house before the quarry. I know I've spoken about the quarry, the Waterfield Limestone Quarry that we also lived beside. But in this particular house, there was a huge tree and these birds, tons of them, tons. And of course, maybe it was 10. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And do you know what kind of birds they were? I think they may have been starlings now that I think about it because they were chattering away and they were flocking together and they were landing on the trees. I was just mesmerized by this, but also frightened. And at the same time too, I couldn't move. Like I thought, wow. And yet I wanted to run inside and my mother was home and I wanted to let her know about what was happening. And so I don't know. I don't know. It's just sort of, and then as your imagination kind of works with that imagery as you move through life, I think it sometimes becomes bigger and and more unexplained in ways that you kind of think, well, did that happen? Or what exactly happened? And in the poem where the girl is strewn on the lawn, frozen, Mm -hmm. I I made me think too of the image of Christina's world by the artist Andrew Wyeth, that sort of image of her being there. And then also the sense of the birds as in the Hitchcock film. So that sort of idea of them having this presence and knowing and this almost like energy that that was going to be released. And there's a worry there, right? Like the the, the birds in a Hitchcock film aren't bringing you seasons of gladness. There's the activity of bird watching. People talk about being bird watchers. And I thought, well, no, let's look at these birds looking at the girl. And they're doing the human watching now. (laughs) So just sort of flipping things around. I think I was thinking about that as well, too, with this poem. And the way the birds populating a tree can kind of look like they actually come from the tree so that they're actually sort of some kind of fruit with these eyes that are like seeds. And then the celery trees, too. This, This particular poem is from my book, the celery forest and that has a whole story connected to why celery forest and what the celery forest is and I was diagnosed with breast cancer the same year that my mother was when she died from the disease and I say this because this is all kind of connected to this particular book and I didn't think I was going to write about it not as a judgmental thing but I just thought it was just too close to what I was going through and I didn't think I would be able to explore that in a way that I normally do with my poems But I was going through the unknown journey at that particular time where a diagnosis had been made, but they're still sorting out what treatment would happen and all the things that turn your life upside down. And we know how often this does happen because it is so prevalent. And I know many people have gone through it themselves or have had to watch other people go through it, loved ones and friends. So at this particular time, I guess it was by this stage, it was fall because the art show called Nuit Blanche that happens here in Toronto, pre-COVID time where there would be all these different artistic and art shows all through the city and they would run to the wee hours of the morning. I had less energy at that time, but we did go out for sort of an early jaunt and we ended up in the Abozo Gallery here in Toronto and I was drawn to the very back and I saw this image of a girl in a red dress holding an 
owl and she was standing at the entryway of a giant celery forest and it was just something about that image I just could not be pulled away from it and I think well I know now why but at that particular time I just knew there was something I was drawn to mm-hmm. and it's by the artist Cora Britton and my, I was very grateful my partner bought the painting for me it's more like a mixed media I guess than a particular painting so it's like a mix of things so we brought it home and again I didn't have a plan to write about this journey but one day I was looking at this image And I started to think about the girl in the red dress and the owl and the relationship between them. And I thought, is she holding the owl or is the owl holding her? And I started to sort of explore that in a poem and it was titled Cancer in the Celery Forest. From there, that became sort of a portal to this whole world called the Celery Forest where animals emerge and a three-legged fawn and there's a royal mole catcher and all kinds of things and celery, of course, too, and also the strange windings of what happened when you are going through the the journey of, of going through what cancer is and how that works through your body and in and out and all of that with hospitals and MRI. So um, kind of like an Alice in Wonderland kind of journey through a portal called the Celery Forest. And so that's why this particular poem just goes there with celery trees and how they become their own world as well too in the book as things do even if it's in the imagination or in this case from an image that an artist has created that looks so lifelike as well too but I see now that that it was the unknown journey of this girl and also it seems you know this sort of relationship she has with the owl and of course the owl is known for wisdom and it's one of those birds because we've talked a lot about birds but it's one of those birds with its eyes facing forward so it has a very sort of human quality to it um when you think about birds normally you kind of think of on the side of the head rather than facing forward like the owl so they're both kind of looking out but there's also this looking in with the celery forest and it's so interesting to be pulled into it as a, as a poet in this case, and just kind of explore through the process of what could happen with celery and how strange and yet not strange it is to have something with giant celery trees <laughs> in this world. Because when you are going through something unexpected, you are kind of shifted into this topsy-turvy kind of psychological space and physical space as well, too. When you get the news of a diagnosis, you know, and, and I'm, I'm only projecting and imagining here. I've not gone through what you've gone through, but I would imagine that it feels like you've stepped into a portal and everything would become otherworldly that's around you. And that, you know, the routines and the normalcy that you once held on to would look different. And the painting is so striking. I will call it a painting for now, just for yes. simplicity. Yes. And it, it does look like the, it, you know, it could be the beginning of a journey or the end of a journey. It's unclear to me, is she entering it or is she exiting it? Oh, Jessica, I love that. I love that sense too. Because that to me is also what poetry does. It's in that push-pull place of is something moving mm. towards, is something moving away, and how that can just in itself be this sort of a field of tension. And I think as as writers we sort of hover in that space just much like the hummingbird in that hovering you know it's moving but it's not moving as it sort of holds that space in the air so but if it stopped moving its wings well we know it would fall so that sense Mm -hmm. of it holding still and that that sense of movement at the same time and just thinking too for I think it was our conversation last week where we talked about how is it a poem can lift off the page how is it that we can make the words move into to motion when they are static on the page and how it's a, a struggle sometimes to make a poem do that sometimes a poem resists 
our will. And, and it's often when we stop wanting to make something happen, that something does happen. <laughs> right. So there's pa patience Absolutely. involved as well, right? <laughs> when we think about process and we think of what guides us to a poem or to an entire book, here is a painting that at the time it spoke to you, if I can just try and summarize here mm -hmm. what we've been talking about, that it spoke to you and you weren't sure why, but then it also speaks to your partner in a way that he feels compelled to buy it for you, right? So those whispers kind of continue and travel and now it's in your home and you're looking at it and certainly as poets we often find our way through things with poetry and so it starts probably with one thought one line one image and then it it just kept going from there and when I look at the image and I see like the celery there's something about the water in a celery right you need to hydrate and you're not drinking enough water I know sometimes people are recommended to drink to eat celery because of its water content they're not interested in drinking yes. you know the eight cups a day well then just eat more celery and drink <laughs> a little little more water but it has that water that life force that's in the, in the water of the celery and, it, and it's health right like it represents health to me and then the fact that she's there in the red dress, and I think about red as being the, it can be love, right? Like pretty obviously, but it can also be that life force too, right? Like the mm -hmm. the, the, the blood that's running through us, the, the life just simply put. And then with the owl, when I think of owls, I often think about, and, and this is just where I end up going for a variety of reasons, but I, I land on the word deception and how things aren't always what they seem. We need to have a closer look at what's here because it's not what you expect it to be. Hearing your story, even about this journey and some of the gifts that came out of it, likely as a horror at the outset, and then even with my own life story, things that happen, they become part of our life story. And then within those experiences, there come blessings might be too big of a word, but they're, they're, you, you come to know things and you learn lessons along the way. I remember you, speaking so beautifully about the connection that you felt with your mother through that experience and then and then the relationship you would have had next through writing this book and working through everything that had happened through the book is also another outcome of it so on the surface it might have appeared one way but it was also another way I don't know this has just kind of been on my mind lately the way that we can have space for two things at once and how yeah. when and this is another theme, I guess, we've been talking about from week to week. And it goes back to that poem that was, was it a bird or a flower in, that I yes. had written? Yes. Um, and mm -hmm. how are things holding two things at once? And the celery forest to me is one of those beautiful things that can, that, that holds those two things. And it holds the real because celery is real, mm -hmm. but it's also completely unreal, right, mm -hmm. in this world. And then you put together such a beautiful book. I have a copy of it, I'm proud oh. to say, <laughs> amongst all your other books on my Catherine Graham shelf. Um, <laughs> I highly recommend all listeners to get a Catherine Graham shelf. Um, and it will it will be filled. Trust me, there are more books coming all the time, even soon. <laughs> Another one, my goodness. <laughs> You oh, might need two shelves. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. yeah, but it turned, you know, and, and that's a beautiful thing as a writer too, that you, you, you know, you've said it yourself. You never would have predicted you would have written a book about that experience. But wow, what a, what a gift for other women who, for me, like me, who haven't gone through that to be able to see through your eyes and what a gift for other readers who have been through that to be able to see their experience expressed in such a way that maybe th that 
helps provide them with some some connection and healing too, you know? Well, thank you for that. And thank you for all your insights there. And it's interesting when you talked about the owl and, and the sense of deception that can be connected to the owl as, as well as wisdom, but again, holding that sort of connection to, to both at the same time. But it made me think too, that show back back in the day, Twin Peaks, and, and there was that phrase, the owls are not what they seem. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I just love that. The owls are not what they seem. Something I kind of feel like, like we need some creepy music in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And also the healthy aspect of celery and the way it does hold water. I'm actually a fan of celery. I love it. But there's, I think it's by John Cleese, the comedian. I think he has a a YouTube thing or there's some kind of skit about celery or he's talked about how like he hates celery. Oh <laughs> just, my gosh. Like, how can you hate celery? But it's just oh. sort of, I guess, you know, if something is just holding water and is to, and, it, and, it, and if your taste buds tell you it's just bland, what's the point of it, right? But I think celery, when it's ripe and, and green, especially the middle parts, I think they're wonderful. I like it too, especially with some nice ranch dip. But when I was younger, I was not such a big fan of celery. I thought it was too bland. And my mom used to put peanut butter and raisins on it and say, no, no, this is ants on a log. And somehow thinking I was eating ants on a log was far more appetizing to me than thinking that I was eating celery. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. And there's the imagination at play right there as well, too. The painting, I want to come back to that for a minute. And yeah. The store that you or the gallery that you bought it in, Mm -hmm. I feel like I went in there with you and you said one day, this is where the celery forest came from on Richmond. And there's it's is it 501 Richmond? I think that might be the address where it's a series of various art shops and galleries and a whole hub of artistic endeavors there. Uh, Because we would get together and have these epic visits that would start with a drink or a meal. And then I would just stay and it would end with walking around the city for hours or we'd end up at a poetry reading somewhere or we'd end up in some some galleries and things like that. And this was when we could gather more easily, obviously. And I do recall at one of our wonderful visits, going into a a shop or a gallery and, and you saying this is where the celery forest came from. Well, I love that. There is an experience you and I had together in Toronto that is at the center of the book that I'm working on right now. I had had a writer reach out to me. His name was Ross King and he was writing an article for The Walrus about Tom Thompson during the summer of 1914. This was years ago. He asked me if Tom Thompson ever stayed at the Giroux Island Lighthouse, which is the lighthouse where my grandfather grew up. And I I said, I'll have to look into that. He said on the back of the sketch, which is at the Art Gallery of Ontario, it says Giroux Island Lighthouse. And the name of the painting is called Bing Inlet, which is the name of the channel that's right by the lighthouse, you know, right where my parents live today. (laughs) And I, I wanted to go and see that painting and I had asked my aunt Bernice because she was she was so she passed away I think in 2012 so this is before 2012 and she was having a rough go in her later years with um with dementia so she had some days that were really she was really sharp as it goes and some days that she wasn't but one one of her more sharp days I asked her you know aunt B did did artists ever stay at the lighthouse when you were a kid now she was born much later than that in into the 1920s so she's younger than my grandfather Uh, but she said oh yes yes all the time we had a little cot that we would put out for them 
often they would stop by and they would sleep at the lighthouse. I said, do you think that it's possible that this happened? And she said, oh, yes, 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 that's totally possible. So when I was thinking about my book that I wanted to write, novel for young people about the lighthouse, it's fiction, but it's inspired by stories of my family. I decided to set it in the summer of 1914 with this painting called Being Inland, being at the center, like that story. And you and I were together in Toronto that summer that I had, that Ross King had reached out and he was doing this article and I was looking into this and this was all on my mind. I said to to you, we just entered the room with the group of seven and you could kind of tell, right? The whole room was all sorts of group of seven paintings and sketches. The other side of the room and all of the paintings to me were like rocks and water. But I said, we're looking for something like that. And I point to a small, you know, sketch, which is really a small painting on the other side of the room and walk toward it like it was far. Right. And it was the exact right painting. It was Bing Inlet by Tom Thompson. Wow. Yes, I remember that. I I knew the rocks and the trees so well were so ingrained in me that I could pick that out from all of the other landscapes that were were hanging in there. And I remember just being lit up from head to toe with with the energy of, of discovering that. The, the actual painting is at the McMichael Gallery. I had the wonderful pleasure of going there with my, my mom and dad, and we saw the painting there, and we took pictures of ourselves with it. <laughs> so we kind of feel like it's ours. So, yes. you know. Art Gallery of Ontario, McMichael, when you're done with it, please return it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's now become the centerpiece of my book called Bernice and the Georgian Bay Gold. Bernice wakes up in the morning and on an otherwise ordinary day, there's an artist named Tom Thompson sleeping on a cot in their living room and he leaves behind a sketch she decides that it's a treasure map because she's been reading Treasure Island. And so the arc of the story is her using this Tom Thompson sketch to try and find her way to some Georgian Bay gold. And there's other things that are happening too, but that's kind of the arc of the the overreaching drama of the story. So neat that we had that experience together all those years ago. And now there's a, another connection to a painting that's inspired work and that you are a part of that story for me because you were with me when I first saw the sketch. I love that. I love the layers of that and how that is leading you to new creative work as well, too, because the story in itself is wonderful, let alone the fact that now you're following the, quote, gold into your own journey as a writer and this story and also how Bernice is part of it as well, too. And so I love that. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Do you remember that day? I do. It's coming back to me. And I remember I can see that room and there's just something powerful about not only just the imagery that you would have been drawn to and knowing that sense of place but that sense too of uh, almost being pulled to it just as you know going back to the the birds and this might be stretching it a bit but the fact that they know where to go through their body and the magnetic field and these other unseen forces which guide them in a certain way and I wonder Jessica if you were blindfolded I bet you would have been led to it (laughs) you're probably right Um (laughs) 
<laughs> maybe that's stretching it a bit, but you know. Well, that, but right? my dad did call me bird, you know, my mom and dad yes. called me bird. So that's yeah. quite possible. I may know. I don't know. Who knows? I probably not. I'd probably walk into a post or into the security guard and have a very embarrassing moment. But yeah, so it's kind of neat how life and art intersect and how these things that happen kind of come. And when we think about, though, our work as being inspired by life, like even with that book that I'm working on right now, it takes place in the summer of 1914. While in real life, my Aunt Bernice wasn't born yet. Right. Uh, so I've had to like, so this is where things can become more like fiction, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you take the essence of a story and a truth of it, and then you explore it through the writing in a way that makes sense. And so did you have that experience too, when you were working on the celery forest, like even though it's inspired by this painting and inspired by experiences in life, did you find along the way that it it also took on a life of its own, the way that it needed to be created? Definitely. I mean, and that's the thing too, when I think about those various pieces of, of what I was saying too, that kind of fed into what birds they were. And I wasn't necessarily aware of that as I was writing it, but when you kind of come out and then see it, you're like, oh yes, that's kind of, there's a bit of this and a bit of that and other things too that I might not even be aware of there. But that that idea of that inner knowing that kind of comes into that last line and the energy of kind of coming from within and the outer moving into the inner where she, quote, coils lightning into the double helix of herself and the way that we can know things. I kind of see that line in different ways now of, of the inner knowing and the almost acknowledgement of the birds as being part of that as she is part of the, their world. And so there's that sort of connection between things that are outside us as well, too. And such a way of strength strength to end on, right? The poem that there's this eeriness throughout her mind floats pastel clouds, a glint of buckle high and dry in the bird free air, she coils lightning into the double helix of herself. To me, that's gathering strength and power and energy to be able to face and and fly. Yeah. And kind of too, and just thinking about the exchange there, which I hadn't thought of until you mentioned certain things there about it's the birds that are, are stationary in the tree too, and she's doing the floating. So interesting yeah. sort of reversal, which I know has been there, but I wasn't aware of. So thank you for pointing that out, Jessica. <laughs> well, you're welcome. I'm, I'm happy to assist. <laughs> please, let me know. please let me know what I'm doing in these poems. <laughs> well, and that's this, the subconscious mind does that too, right? Yeah. And, and especially when we're writing with things that we're passionate about and that are close to us there are things that come out in the creative process that you don't realize until you double back and sometimes you don't see them until it can be years it can be a decade that goes by and you go back and look at something and go wow okay well much like what happened with the connection with the tom thompson sketch and and obviously painting too and how that's serving your imagination and your journey right now i mean that's another seed that was dormant and ready to come out at this particular time. It was. And with this particular book, you know, I'm writing it quite quickly, which, you know, could be a worrisome thing for some to think, wow, okay, that's coming out pretty quick. But I've also had these stories that I've been holding on to for many years that I haven't known quite how to integrate. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like you're holding your whole basket of yarn and you've got all the different types there and colors and you're just not quite sure what you're going to do with them and then all of a sudden this whole elaborate 
elaborate thing kind of comes together. And and to me, that gives me hope that I can put less pressure on myself to always turn everything that comes my way that's good into something. Like that was a good story, that Tom Thompson story. <laughs> and I felt pressure to turn it into something. But I feel that the waiting the holding it until the moment where it feels now that the energy is right, that it's it's come into something beautiful. And it couldn't have happened before this fall. It really couldn't. The pieces have literally all just come together. And the idea of gold in the story came this summer to me because my aunt and my uncle were having a little bit of an argument, a brotherly sisterly argument. My aunt was talking about how my grandparents had a gold mine out in the bay and my family did not have a lot of money. So what is this? They apparently had an island that they had shared ownership with other couples and it, they called it the gold mine. And my uncle was like, no, 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 no. It was mica. It was mica. It wasn't gold. I just loved the tension in that, that one of them was sure parents had a gold mine <laughs> and the other <laughs> one was certain that it was not gold and it was mica and they had it for a while, couldn't figure out how to mine it because <laughs> it's in the rock, which is another thing we don't often to think about when it comes to these precious things like gold yeah. <laughs> is it just doesn't appear in a treasure chest like it does in some books like Treasure Island. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally trapped in the rock. So what? how's a six-year-old or an eight-year-old going to get that out? We'll have to sort that through the book, right? But anyways, <laughs> I just, I, I just loved all that story there and thought this is, there's just a whole lot of fun to be had here between the gold, which is Tom Thompson and his paintings and how that painting and that summer was really the turning point for him in him becoming fully who he is and how we know him today in terms of his art and his impact. And I loved that. And I also love this idea of the gold of the land and what appears to people will be a story of gain, that she's going to go on this adventure and, and achieve these things. The whole book is actually going to end up being a story of loss because by the end of the book, her name will be changed and her Métis heritage will be hidden. How does a family story get erased and the narrative get rewritten? Is that something that happens quickly or slowly? And what does that look like through the eyes of a child during the summer? Well, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think we've run out of time, Catherine. Yeah, I know we have. And uh, another wonderful time with you in this space again, Jessica. Thank you. Okay. Take care. And so we finish our chat with Just Another Day by the talented Shannon Linton. <laughs> It's just another day, but it up, but it up, but it up, but it up.